and on thy gates. I want to open with a word of prayer and then we'll continue on. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together. Be glorified now, Father, we pray. May you be exalted in this service. And Lord, may this series be a series, Lord, that ultimately inspires and encourages many to begin family worship. And if indeed they are already engaged in it, we pray that it will only cause them to want to be even more fervent in it. We'll thank you, we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. We obviously live in a world where rebellion is encouraged. Disobedience is exalted and sin is accepted. A culture where right is despised, truth is rejected, morality is mocked. A society where the Bible is considered irrelevant, Jesus is a myth, and God is often blasphemed. America has become increasingly hostile and intolerant toward Christianity and toward Christian beliefs and values. And it seems rather apparent, excuse me, that many would like to retract or remove our religious freedoms. Sadly today, you're free to be a Christian as long as it affects no one. As long as it's not displayed anywhere. As long as it doesn't impact anyone. It must be a faith that is socially irrelevant. It cannot disagree with anyone or stand in opposition to anyone. The real concern is that this growing insistence that faith be privatized has now become a demand for faith to be compromised. And that's a problem. And it's something that we need to be very cognitive of and we need to be aware of. It's not enough that your beliefs can't influence society anymore, but instead, you must also embrace society's beliefs. As Jonah Goldberg noted in USA Today, the opposition to many Christian values has become a, quote, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality. If you're not all in with us as a culture, then you are against us as a culture. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Things are out of balance today. In a perfect world where there is no sin at all, excuse me, I said that wrong. Again, I'm worried about the cameras. I'm going to stop worrying about cameras and focus on my message, okay? In a perfect world, there'd be no sin. That's what I'm trying to say. But today, there is little, if anything, about our world that's perfect. And sin abounds. You know, we need a counterbalance of truth. We need that counterbalance. And we need it to offset the sin of the world. And, and we need it to offset the sin in our lives. But then again, that's nothing new. It's always been that way, no matter when you lived, where you lived. As a matter of fact, Thomas Campbell in 1839, he made this statement. He said, how disgusting and mortifying to hear and see in professing families almost nothing but the concerns of the world. Remember now, this is 1839. He goes on, as I said, how disgusting and mortifying to hear and see in professing families almost nothing but the concerns of this world, the paltry affairs of a, of a present life. They have not time to make an educational and edifying use of the scriptures in their families by reading them con- connectively and educational and edifying use of this. Wait a second, I just messed up again. By reading them connectively, now this is 1839, all right? Give me a break. 
and attentively with suitable interrogations, observations, and exhortations for the edification of all concerned according to their respective abilities. But if read at all, they close the book without a single remark and leave it as ignorant and unaffected as before they opened it. And so, pass on to something else. Besides, they never think of reading it regularly in its proper connection as they do other books they want to understand or of assisting one another by conversing with each other familiarity, familiarly, familiarly and interestingly about it. Many of these undevout triflers are not ashamed to tell you that they have no time, that they cannot afford to make such a sacrifice of their precious hours Thus, to waste their time in reading and praying and conversing about the sacred contents of the book of life. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty harsh indictment on those that lived in 1839. And may I just say that if he was struggling with that in 1839, can you imagine how he would view the world, the culture, and the society today? He continues by adding, Are not such professors confessedly carnalists, minders of things of the flesh, earthly things? What he's saying is basically this. If we don't have time to train and teach our children the word of God in our homes, then are we not just simply carnal? Is it not that we're just simply being uh, inundated and, and, and saturated with the world so grossly that we cannot focus our attention on God? We're distracted by everything the world has to offer. And he says, is that not a travesty? Is that not a problem? Is that not carnality? Is that not just simply flesh? responding. Even in Thomas Campbell's day, 1839 again, believers neglected their responsibilities and failed to educate their families as God expected. The culture promoted sin, but many failed to provide the counterbalance of truth, even in 1839. As difficult as the world may make it for our families to live separated and victorious lives in Jesus Christ, we have to realize we have to realize that it's, it, it isn't the world that is our greatest enemy. No, it is apathy. Apathy is our greatest enemy. Apathy among God's people is what is creating this gulf between us and training and teaching our children. No doubt it is essential that we counterbalance the evil that weighs upon our loved ones. But that is not going to happen till we recognize and accept the reality that it is our responsibility to infect our children for God. See, we can't count on our culture to point our children to God because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. It is your responsibility, it's my responsibility as Christian parents to infect them with the truth of the Word of God. It must be understood at this point that God would never require us to well, to tie our shoes if he didn't provide the string. Neither will he require us to raise a godly seed and not provide the means by which to accomplish it. And I think that's an important reality that we have to keep in mind. We have to be very aware of the fact that God is not going to ask us to do something that he's not going to empower us to do. See, the devil seems to have convinced believers that about all you can do to ensure that your children walk in the light is to just do your best and just hope for the best and hope that they just turn out right. Just do your best and hope for the best and maybe they'll turn out right. I'm going to tell you something. That is not consistent with the character of God. 
God would never require us to do something that he hasn't already empowered us to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. I like that passage. He's calling us. He's going to equip us to accomplish the work that he's given us to do. And he's going to do it in and through us. Wilbur J. Chapman writes in 1900 approximately, I think he was born in 1859 and he, I believe, died in 1918, if I'm not mistaken. So probably right around the turn of the last century, he wrote, Fathers cannot ignore their God-given position. He goes on to tell a story about a particular judge by the name of Alton B. Parker and his favorite grandson, Parker Hall. Excuse me, Alton Parker Hall, which was just five years old. And this young boy narrowly escaped death by drowning in the Hudson River. He said for a half an hour, the two of them played in the water. Then Judge Parker, he said, took the boy for a swim into deep water. He placed the boy on his back and he, he swam around for a while and then he decided to float, turning over, seating the boy astride on his chest. In this manner, the judge just floated a distance from the wharf before he noticed it. He didn't realize how far he had floated. Then he attempted to turn over again in order to swim nearer to shore. In the effort to transfer the boy, you know, to his back again, that little guy got so scared and so frightened that he just kind of grabbed hold of the judge's neck. And it seemed like everything the judge tried to do, it just seemed the little boy just kept clamping down harder and harder and harder. And he just would not let go. And we would not let his hold slip at all. He just held on more tightly. And the more scared he got, the harder he gripped. And finally, the judge, he got scared. He got scared indeed. And boy, the boy could tell, and he began to whimper slightly and cry. And in just a few moments, the, 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 the gasp of that boy, the grasp of that boy became so tight that Judge Parker couldn't even breathe anymore. He tried to shake that boy loose. He then attempted to break his grip. The boy held on with the desperation of death, and he just would not let go. Every effort that the judge made only plunged them both beneath and, and further down into the water. He went down once. He went down twice. He come up gasping for breath. Finally, before he went down under for the last time, he cried out and he begged for help. The mistake that that man, Wilbur J. Chapman says, made, the mistake that distinguished man made, he said, was that he went too far from shore with the boy. He got too far out. He went too far away from shore. And may I say today that there are many men in our homes in America and in the Christian home and the Christian church who are doing the exact same thing. They're going out too far in social life. They're too lax in the question of amusements. They're too thoughtless in the subjects of, of life. And instead, they continue to go out further and further and deeper and deeper into the world and they're taking their sons and their daughters with them. What are you doing as a leader in your home to counterbalance this atheistic and anti-God influence in the lives of our families? I picture in my mind a kind of a, a scale, kind of like a, a round, if you just took a little, 
I guess, a ball or something, and you put a board on it, and it just kind of go like this. And I see the worldly influence of destructive, uh, the worldly influence, and how destructive the philosophies of the world are. And I see truth. And the truth is, is that worldly influences and destructive philosophies are weighing out. They're the ones that are playing a heavier. They they have a heavier influence in our lives often than truth does. That's a problem for the believer. There's no reason in the world why a believer ought to allow the world to have more influence than the truth. And I believe that a time of family worship is more needed than ever in this lopsided, upside-down, backward world in which we live. And yet, that isn't really the main reason for having family worship. See, the truth is that even if our culture was Bible-based and it was God-oriented, Family worship would still be just as necessary and just as expected by God. Why is that? Because it has a biblical precedence. Remember our text in Deuteronomy chapter 6? He says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as fontless between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. This principle... And responsibility was considered so important that God restates it later in the very Deuteronomy. We find it again in chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, when he says, Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as fontlets between your eyes, and ye shall teach your children, teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. He restates it. It's that awfully important to God that we are teaching and training our children in the word of God. The spiritual role for fathers was understood even in the time of David. We find over in the book of Psalm chapter 78, a Psalm of Asaph. And in Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 6, we read, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Notice again this, this reality here. We're finding here in the passage that God is saying, listen, whether it was way back there in Deuteronomy early on or even up here now in the time of David and the kings, the fact is, is that I intended and I expect you as fathers, as leaders in your homes to teach and to train your children in the word of God because there's going to come a day you won't be there anymore and they need to know that truth too and they need to pass it on to their families. I like when he says, I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. Boy, how important it is that dad step up to the plate, sit down with his children, 
or take a walk and say, listen, let's talk about Jesus. The King of kings is He. The Lord of Lord supreme throughout eternity. The responsibility of establishing the next generation sits squarely on the shoulders of the head of the home. And the head of the home ought to be dad. That's a God-ordained authority. If there's no dad in the home, then grandpa. If dad or grandpa isn't in the home, then mom must step up to the plate. Somebody's got to teach the children the Word of God. Somebody's got to teach them about the God of the Bible. This trend of spiritual leadership continues in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, fathers were commanded to instill the word of God in the lives of their children as well. We look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 where the Bible says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To bring them up implies investment, instilling values, enabling and providing opportunity for growth. The nurture and admonition of the Lord immediately ties this bringing up to the Word of God and to His commandments and His statutes. We're bringing them up to understand and to grasp and to embrace the Word of God and His commandments, His statutes. Again, we read in our text, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as fontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Listen, this isn't the first generation that demands and requires us to tell and to teach our children about God and the word of God. As I told you this morning, this book that I hold in my hand here is a hundred years old. A hundred years old. And I mean to tell you, there are literally hundreds of, of opportunities or teaching opportunities to a family within the context of this book. Now, when I read through these things, I'm going to tell you the truth. <clears throat> I could preach some of these, and I don't know that we'd even know what we're ta- it's talking about. The depth and the... the, 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 the uh, um, the Word of God that's being shared in this, these, this book, I mean to tell you, I, I think college students around the country would learn something by reading it. I'm telling you that what we think is really good, some of the Sunday school material we're being taught, some of the, the, the teachings of the Word of God that we see, think we've really got a grasp on, I'm telling you there's so much to the Word of God that we often fail to, 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 to know ourselves and teach our children. Boy, we need to start digging, men. We need to start digging, ladies. We need to start getting in our Bible and understanding the Word of God so that we can share it with our families, so that we can truly make a difference in their lives. It can make a difference in their lives. So what began so long ago continues to be a priority and a necessity in God's eyes today. So I want to give you three thoughts real quick. Here they are. Number one, it begins with you. It begins with you. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he starts off by saying, In these words which I command thee this day. I command thee this day. Shall be in thine heart. 
I think of Joshua. What a tremendous example he is of this truth. Over there in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, we know that, as we've mentioned before, that Moses has passed off the scene and now Joshua is going to lead the people of God into the promised land. So what do we expect from Joshua? How is he going to lead these people? He's a little concerned about it, I'm sure, and he goes to God and God comes back and God tells him. He says, and if it seem evil unto you, or should I say Joshua goes to to the people now after God's spoken to him in in chapter uh, 1 and now it's the end of chapter 24. Excuse me, I'm getting a little mixed up here from this morning. But now they've occupied the land, and now Joshua is going to be passing off the scene. And now Joshua is going to make a statement to the people of God, and he says, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want you to recognize and understand that he starts by saying, as for me. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is the honest truth. Your children will never be able to grow and learn the word of God in your home, sir, until you finally say, as for me. It starts with you. It starts with the leaders in the home. Again, if there's no dad, there's no grandpa, then there has to be a mom or somebody to step up and teach and train these truths to the children, to the household. But there's got to be a leader. Somebody's got to say, as for me, before they say in my house. Too often we're looking for the church to come alongside. And and the church not even to come alongside as much as to take the place of our responsibility in the home. God intended that daddies and God intends that mamas sit down with children and teach them the word of God. And when they come to church, they're going to be uplifted and they're going to be encouraged and it's going to be reinforced over and over again. And if there's a need in that family's life, there's a pastor there to encourage and to instruct and to even counsel. But the fact is, is that God does not expect the church to raise your children in the word of God. He expects you to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The church is there to help you. The church is there to support you, but the church is not there to do it in lieu of you. It begins with you. Joshua says, as for me, then he goes on to say, and my house. It's after he understands his personal responsibility that then he's able to help others. What is your relationship with God like? How much faith do you possess? How faithful are you? Is there anything more important to you than pleasing God and becoming Christ-like? I believe that that's the real root of the problem that we have today in family worship. I'm convinced that the truth is, is that the Word of God is not big enough in our hearts, therefore it's not big enough in our homes. There's no way that you or I can possibly impact the life of our children if God hasn't already impacted our life. We're not going to impact them on behalf of Christ if Christ hasn't impacted us. Why is it so important that you and I are the spiritual leaders we ought to be? Well, that brings us to the next point. First of all, it begins with you. Number two... It depends on you. It depends on you. 
he says in, the, in, in our passage, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. First of all, it begins with you because you have to have a relationship and a walk with God. But then this thing of family worship depends on you because if you don't teach it, it ain't going to get done. It's not going to happen. The responsibility rests squarely on your shoulders. In my home, it rests squarely on my shoulders. The head of the home is responsible to teach and to train all that are in the household. This is especially true with our children. But it is not limited to our children. Whoever is under your roof, you are responsible to train and teach them the Word of God. You say, well, I got a, a brother that's visiting in our home and him and his family live in my house. I believe biblically they ought to gather with you in family worship then. I think biblically you have a right. You're the head of the home, not him. You say, well, he's head of his home. He'll do what he wants. No, he's under your roof. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the, in the days ahead as we focus on Abraham. But the fact is, is that, sir, you have to command your household. And whoever's under the roof of your home, you have to command. There are not two heads to any, any situation. There's only one head. Anything with two heads is a monster. At least the way we view it today. I have to be careful because when I say something like that, I know somebody thinks about, well, what about Siamese twins? And honestly, that's the first thing I thought. Somebody's going to nail me. Somebody's going to say, well, that's not a monster. Whatever. But it's not natural. Put it that way. It's not how it's supposed to be. May I say that there's not supposed to be two heads in any home either. It's not natural. It's not what we would call normal. I feel sorry for people who have to enter life like that and have to deal with those things. That would be tragic and horrible. Nobody, listen to this, there isn't no one, there's not anyone like that that ultimately wouldn't want to be independent and be their own leader. But even in a situation like that, you'll find that there's a leader in that. It's crazy, but you'd find that to be the case if you did some research. Nonetheless, Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. What we find is that this command to teach and to train those in our household is ordained of God and it won't get done if you don't do it. So what we find right off the bat is it begins with you because it starts with your walk, your relationship with the Lord. But then it depends on you because there's no teaching, no training that's going to take place unless you step up to the plate and fulfill your God-given role and responsibility to do so. And finally, number three, it only works if you work it. And thou shalt talk with them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. John Bunyan stated it this way, and you may have heard his name. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. But John Bunyan said, I hope I got the right guy there. Is he the one that planted trees? But anyway, no, that, that was Johnny Appleseed, right? Okay, big difference. Okay, so anyway, John Bunyan. I'm just glad there's somebody in the audience shaking their head going, Okay, good. I got it. It's the Holy Spirit, really. It wasn't anybody in our audience tonight. I'm sorry. I'm having, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't, mind, I don't mind speaking to this camera. It doesn't bother me a bit. I've, I've gotten used to it already after a few times. So if I act crazy or something or say something out of place, it's just I'm acting normal. 
that's pretty scary, isn't it? But nonetheless, John Bunyan stated it this way. He said, first, as touching the spiritual state of his family, he should be very diligent and circumspect, doing his utmost endeavor both to increase faith where it is begun and to begin it where it is not. My dad loved football. I mean, he loved football. He didn't just like football. He loved it. He played it. He coached it. He watched it. I remember early on in my life, my brother and I was, was, we could be found sitting on the sideline of my dad's football team. They'd be playing a football game or practicing, and we'd be sitting on the sideline, and we were the water boys. Now, we were too young to play the game itself, so my dad allowed us to be water boys. Every time the players got a break, all right, we'll take the water out. We'd go run out there, and we'd take them water. And those jugs were about as big as we were running out there on that field. We were just enamored by those boys. We just thought they were the biggest thing. They were bigger than life itself. Man, I mean, they were the greatest athletes. They, I mean, to tell you, they were just as powerful and just as tough and just as important as John, uh, uh, not John Brown, but as uh, Jim Brown was to the Cleveland Browns. And so I still remember growing up that football was a real staple in my life. And so we would go to the games, and eventually that season ended, and my dad continued to take us to football games. We'd go on Friday night to what was called the Rubber Bowl at the time. And on Friday nights, they had double headers. And uh, there would be two teams that would play each other, and then there'd be two other teams that would play. But I'll tell you what, that was a great night. I loved football now. I went with my dad, and, and we would dissect the defense and the offense. We would do all kinds of different things. We would try to, try to figure out what the next play was based on the, the, the way the teams uh, set up and the way they positioned their players. And so it's going to be a run this time. It's going to be to the right side. It's going to be between the, the two gap or the two and four gap. It's going to be around the, they're going to sweep left, or they're going to throw a short pass over the, uh, into the flat, or whatever it might be. And what we would just, boy, we just loved it. I'd go home and I would take that football of mine and I would hold it tight to my chest and when it came time to go to bed, man, I put that thing in my bed with me and I snuggled up with it. I love football. You want to know why? Because my dad had instilled that love and passion in me. See, it wasn't like he intentionally set out to do it. It wasn't like he said, I'm going to make sure my boy loves football. I'm going to really work at that. That's going to be my goal in life. He didn't even make that his goal in life. He just simply was who he was, himself. And I caught his passion. See, they say more is caught than taught. I loved what he loved. Can you imagine if he would have really worked at that? By the way, if you want your children to love and cherish your wife, you want them to cherish and love your mother, then you must love and cherish her. I don't understand why my boys don't respect my wife. You better be real careful. You just might be testifying now. I'm going to tell you something. Important how you treat her. It makes a difference. 
I'm not saying that boys aren't going to find themselves in opposition to that kind of leadership. They they struggle with a a woman telling them what to do. Boys are naturally going to buck the authority of a woman. That is just the way it is. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and find that struggle. But what I will say is this. It will go a long way, sir, if you will treat your wife with respect and you will love her and cherish her. You'll find that your boys will be much more apt to do so. By the way, I still love the game of football to this day. Can I ask you something? What will your children love? What is our greatest passion for our family? What's our greatest passion for our children? Is it that they have a good education? Because if that's what yours is, then that's what they will catch. I'm not saying that it can't be important. I'm not saying that it isn't necessarily a priority in your life. Matter of fact, I can guarantee you this. As much as my dad loved football and as passionate as he was about football, I promise you I did not want to bring a C or a D home on my report card. I'd be wearing it. He wanted me to get good grades. He wanted me to succeed in life. But he also, without even trying, passed on his passion for the game of football. I believe that if we'll really put forth an effort to pass our passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I think that it would happen more naturally than ever. But especially if we're putting forth an effort. It's got to have an impact on our youngsters. In our passage, God intended that you and I love him. And he intended that we love him in front of our children. Do you know our children really are really, they're a reflection of ourselves. It's kind of scary when we think about it, isn't it? Especially if there's bad things we got to face all the time. But it's important that we live our love for Christ in front of our children. See, when we're sitting around the house, when we're walking along the street, before we go to bed and when we wake up, God would have us talking about Him. It's not just enough to sit down for 20 minutes in our house and in our living room and say, guess what, kids? We're just going to get with the Word of God today. We're just going to read a few scriptures and ask a couple questions and go to bed or flip the TV back on and just move on with life. No, this is a lifestyle. Christ ought to be more than just simply something we fit in our schedule. He's our life. The real purpose of every home. Now listen closely. The real purpose of every home is to shape character for time and eternity. That's not going to be accomplished with a part-time effort. The thought that we can just go ahead and invite the world in and that we can just kind of sprinkle Jesus in our families from time to time is not going to get the job done. It's not going to happen. There's too much opposition. Man, the world's just too strong. The devil's fighting us tooth and nail. I mean, he is really doggedly coming after believers. Your children need more than just a little salt sprinkled over them. They need to be saturated with him. 
And that means it begins with us. And it depends on you. And it only works if you work it, though. So I just don't know. I, I don't know the Bible that well. And I don't... Listen, it's time to stop making excuses. Can I say this? I don't think there's one adult in our church that doesn't more, know more about the Bible than their eight-year-old. I think you could probably read a chapter in the Bible and learn as much about that chapter as your children probably know about the whole Bible if you really put your mind to it. The bottom line is, is that we have to make it a, a personal responsibility. We have to be willing to accept the responsibility that as leaders in our home, we must share Jesus and the Word of God and train our children. In 1557, John Knox wrote to his congregation as he went into exile. He said, you are bishops and kings. Your wife, children, servants, and family are your bishopric and charge. Of you it shall be required how carefully and diligently you have instructed them in God's true knowledge. And therefore I say, you must make them partakers in reading, exhorting, and in making common prayers, which I would in every house were used once a day at least. He's saying, listen, as a leader in our home, even back in 1557, he recognized how important it was that leaders in their homes continue to train and teach their children about God and His Word, that they instruct them in God's true knowledge, that they make them partakers, as he says, in reading, exhorting, and in making common prayers, and that they do it at least once a day. At least once a day. During the Great Awakening, George Whitfield preached that, quote, we must forever despair of seeing a primitive spirit of piety revived in the world until we are so happy as to see a revival of primitive family religion. <clears throat> what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, we might as well just forget it. We're not going to see our culture. We're not going to see our world. We're not going to see our communities set on fire for God. We're not going to see them trans, uh, transformed for Jesus Christ until the home is transformed, till we're doing something with it in our homes. He reiterated that, quote, every governor of the family, that's you, Dad, by the way, or you, Grandpa, or you, Mom, if there's no dad in the home, is bound to instruct those under his charge in the knowledge of the Word of God. Jonathan Edwards lived 1703 to 1758. He stated in his farewell sermon, he's the one that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. He said, family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffective. He's saying that if we don't train our children in the home, don't expect the church to make the difference. That's what he's saying. If we don't get a hold of their hearts in family worship, then don't think somehow the preacher's going to get a hold of their heart. If we don't have reached our teenagers with the gospel and the truth of the word of God in our homes, at the knee of mama and daddy, then don't think the youth director's going to make a difference. 
It begins in the home. That's where the real work starts. That's where the real work takes place. Hey, it begins with you. What's your walk? What's your relationship with the Lord? How you doing? What's, invalu- what's valuable to you? What's most important to you first, sir? Well, I got a job and I'm busy and I've got lots to do. Neglect your family? You say, I'd never neglect my family. I provide for my family. I meet their every need. I'm saving money so they can even go to college. So they can get a worldly education. Well, what about a spiritual education? I'm not opposed to saving money so your children can go to college. I would encourage you to let your children pay a big portion of it, though, so they learn the value of money. You don't have to agree with that. But the fact is, is that I think too many times our children are being given way too much and they don't appreciate what they have. We'll let that sit there. But let me say this. It begins with you. You're willing to meet every need in their life? Good for you, sir. But let's meet their spiritual need, too. It depends on you, because if you don't teach it, though, it'll never be taught. I've given my wife that responsibility. Can I tell you, your boys will not respond to your wife like they respond to you? They're looking for your leadership in the home, because that's how God and That's how God determined it. You're to lead that home. You don't give it to your wife. You don't don't pass on your God-given responsibility to your wife and think that it's going to be honored in your home. We've got to get away from this stuff. And if it works, it only works if you work it. I just don't think it's worked. I tried that stuff before. Then you didn't work it. You started, but you didn't finish it. I just want to encourage you I want you to go back 100 years in your mind and say, how in the world did they need to have to have family worship? If it was so important back then, wouldn't it be more important now? 100 years ago, you telling me that somebody took the time to write a book like this, that thick, with that many lessons, that it was that important in homes back there in, eight, in 1920? That they had to write a book about it? Yeah, even in 1920, it was that important. How much more important is it that we teach and train our children the Word of God? About God, His goodness, His grace, His mercy, and about His Word. Family worship. Infecting the family with God. Listen. The truth is is this, as I close. Based on what I'm hearing, Virtually every one of us in earshot are going to get the virus. That's what they're basically saying. You're going to get infected with a virus. You know what I believe? I believe it's more important that our children get infected with the word than anything else in the world. See, you're going to catch the virus whether you want it or not, probably. But you don't catch the word of God by chance. And God expects that one to be passed on to our children. It's time that we as believers say, you know what, there's nothing more important in this world to me than that my children are infected with God. I may not be able to protect them from a virus. I may not be able to protect them from all the hurts and heartaches of this world. I may not be able to keep them from experiencing heartache and trouble and trial, but I can give them God.
Make that a priority in your life. Infect them with God. I'm not saying what I said to scare you, by the way. Honestly, if I'm you and I'm just like you, I'm just going to trust the Lord. I ain't going to worry about this thing. My goodness. We got a God that's bigger than what's going on today. We're his children. He'll take care of us. He'll meet our needs. Let's just pray that God protect our older people. Let's pray that God take care of those that have pre-existings. Let's pray that God watch over our youngsters. Let me tell you something. I'm a little more concerned with the spiritual well-being than the physical. And in the end, our children would be much better served if we would be more concerned about their spiritual well-being than the physical even. God help us to have family worship and infect our children with God. Infect our households with God. Father, we come to you. We thank you for